Welcome to Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast. Today we have for you another episode of the Leadership Series, where we bring CEOs into the podcast booth to discuss leadership in our changing energy and utility future. If this is your first time listening, this is our official podcast of EnergyCentral.com, and we use it as a platform to bring in the movers and shakers of the utility industries to discuss the state of the sector today, the trends that are shaping the utility of the future, and the innovators who are bringing about the change. I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe, Community Ambassador with Energy Central based in New York City. And I'm joined all the way from Orlando, Florida by producer of this podcast and Energy Central's Community Manager, Matt Chester. Matt, you and I have had the unfair advantage of meeting Mark Gabriel backstage. He's not only affable, but exudes incredible passion for his work. For a guy from the Bronx who has made good and big in the power industry. Are you buckled in? Because it's gonna be a wild ride. Well, I grew up in New Jersey, so I can say I'm happy to have on a guest who's already shown he knows a good bagel or pizza when he sees one. (laughs) And as a reminder, our Leadership Series is a special subset of the podcast episodes where we're fortunate enough to feature CEOs who are really driving the energy sector. And we're so privileged to have with us today the CEO of the Western Area Power Administration, or WAPA, Mr. Mark Gabriel. WAPA is a key player in the Western United States to ensure reliability, resilience, and affordability of power to customers across a vast region. And those stakeholders are certainly fortunate to have Mark sitting at the helm as his passion and knowledge for the utility sector guides his every decision. We'll dig a bit into Mark's path through the power industry and bring him into the podcast booth in just a moment. But first, we'd like to give a word of thanks to the sponsors of this podcast who made this episode possible. To West Monroe, West Monroe works with the nation's largest electric, gas, and water utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital workforce transformations. West Monroe brings in a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise to address modernizing aging infrastructure, advisory on transportation electrification, ADMS deployments, and DER and cybersecurity. To ESRI, ESRI, an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, web GIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Enterix, focused on delivering transformative broadband that enables the modernization of critical infrastructure for the energy, transportation, logistics, and other sectors of our economy. And to Scott Madden, a management consulting firm serving clients across the energy utility ecosystem. Areas of focus include transmission and distribution, the grid edge, generation, energy markets, rates and regulations, corporate sustainability, and corporate services. The firm helps clients develop and implement strategies, improve critical operations, reorganize departments and entire companies, and implement myriad initiatives. Once again, we're so happy to bring to our podcast, Mark Gabriel, the CEO of Western Area Power Administration, or WAPA. Mark's history in the power industry stretches back several directions, from his time with Central Vermont Public Service to the Electric Power Research Institute, to several consulting firms, and finally taking the reins of WAPA in 2013. You've likely read Mark's thought leadership directly or his opinions and perspectives quoted in many trade journals and also on the Energy Central. But whether his words are repeated in power industry boardrooms or when testifying in front of Congress, he is influencing our thinking in the understanding of what our current and future state of transmission and distribution is in our country. His enthusiasm for his business is contagious, and his background is pretty tough to match. And when we started looking for key leaders who can speak to the importance of the grid, 
and how it will continue to evolve in the near and long-term future, there are few people who could come up with who would outpace Mark as a top guest. So let's not waste any more time talking about him. We want to get started talking to him. Mark Gabriel, welcome to today's episode of Energy Central's Power Perspectives. Well, thanks. It's a great honor to be with you and talking about my favorite subject. That's terrific, Mark. Even for seasoned veterans of the power sector, the alphabet soup we play with different entities can be a lot to keep up with. So, just to start, can you give us an overview of what WAPA is and the role it plays in the U.S. power sector? Yeah, certainly. The Western Area Power Administration takes the hydropower from 57 dams across the western United States. Some of the big dams you know, whether it's a Hoover Dam or Glen Canyon Dam, Flaming Gorge, and we put that out over 17,200 miles of transmission, covering roughly 15 states. And I always try to talk about it in terms of size. Our footprint is 1.3 million square miles. It's sort of like going from Paris to Moscow and Athens to Oslo with all the politics in between. It is an amazing organization, both given our breadth and our stretch across this great footprint in the West. WAP is connected to more utilities than anyone else. Uh, some other fun facts are we've got 320 substations, uh, 488 communication sites, 114,000 structures, and a partridge in a pear tree. Fantastic. The state of the grid has become a topic of quite heated interest recently, and that was even the case before the fiasco in Texas that led so many without power. Many people are calling the grid neglected, run down, and there's a need to re-engineer it completely. But you contend that this is unfair and unjustified. Why is that? Well, if you look over the past 100 years, we have continuously upgraded and expanded the transmission system in the United States. In fact, WAPA alone spends roughly $160 million a year on upgrading its system. And that ranges on everything from more sensors and communication devices some really simple things like replacing wood poles with metal poles. So I think it's, it's unfair to suggest that the grid is somehow falling down or third world. Now, certainly there are technologies that can be added to the grid and should be added to grid. Certainly there are places where the transmission system needs to be bolstered. Certainly more investment in terms of resilience and reliability are going to be critical for us to manage in a low carbon or no carbon environment going forward. But I, I do bristle a little bit when folks say, oh, the grid is falling down. It really isn't. It can use more investment. But also, we always have to balance the challenge of affordability. We could gold plate the grid and then turn around and find ourselves not being able to afford those upgrades. That said, there's things we could do right now that would significantly improve how the grid operates. And those things are investments that some of them are very simple, some of them are more complex, but I think it's unfair to say that the grid is somehow falling down or third world. So Mark, is the grid being upgraded and invested in, in the way you suggest more or less uniformly across the country, or do you think there are some areas that might be lagging behind others? Clearly, investments in the transmission system vary from region to region, from utility to utility. But given the critical nature of the transmission backbone for the United States, and quite frankly, for any country, uh, investments are being made. Your perspective on investments really depends on where you're standing. So for example, there are many renewable 
energy projects which are not currently served by the transmission system. So there is clearly an amount of frustration. Gee, I don't have the transmission system in my backyard to easily hook to. On the other hand, virtually every utility I know that's in the transmission business is figuring out how can they cost effectively make upgrades to the system to handle what is really a fundamental change in operations. When you think about why WAPA, for example, built its transmission system, it was based to bring the power from those 57 hydro plants that I mentioned to the customers. Well, over time, that has morphed, and now there are coal plants hooked to it, renewable power plants, gas plants. So the nature of the grid operations have really changed. We've also changed our expectations. 15 years ago, having a A-plus grid was good enough. But in a digital society, you need AAA quality power. So the, how the grid is invested in is a direct result of the changing face of the energy industry. And I think people have to realize that because remember, we all want three things. We want a reliable grid, a resilient grid, and we want a grid that is not so costly that we can't afford to make those changes. Okay, but hold on. I want to be clear here. You're telling us that if we could rewind the tape to the early years of when the system was being planned and developed, it would likely turn out much the way it is today? I'm not sure it'd be 100% the way it is today, but I can tell you it would be fundamentally like we have it. Now, if I could rewind the tape 100 years ago, what would we do differently? That's the question that I ask all the time. Well, first and foremost, from my perspective, this industry, the electric utility business, has 2,200 different entities that are engaged in it. So ownership of the transmission grid, for example, varies from things like WAPA, which is part of the Department of Energy, to investor-owned utilities, depending on where you are, to rural electric co-ops, to GNTs in the cooperative business, and to municipalities. So I would never have designed a system with so many players. But fundamentally, what do we try to do? We try to move generation of all kinds to the populace. And the change over the decades, quite frankly, has also included the way the population has shifted. Just look at any major metropolitan area, particularly in the Western United States and the Southeastern United States. For example, Metro Atlanta was relatively small hub in Georgia, and now then it expanded out from the center. Well, in that expansion, it meant a number of players have to be engaged in how the transmission system is built. So rather than saying I would build it exactly the same, I think it's more accurate to say if we were here 100 years ago with perfect insight into the future, we would build a grid recognizing where the population centers are, recognizing where the generation was going to be, and then recognizing that we needed a different type of grid, one that is smarter, faster, more flexible. But of course, hindsight is 2020. We don't have that kind of foresight. So what I try to look at is, if I were to design a grid on a blank piece of paper, let's say on a desert island, certainly I would have a system with 765 kilovolt lines running north, south, east, and west. But that's not realistic in today's environment. Always ask the question, so what can I do today to improve grid resiliency and reliability, as well as 
having the right affordability. And to me, that comes down to a few specific things. For example, in the Western United States, we have one basic grid. In the Eastern United States, we have another grid. And of course, we have Texas, which we could talk about later. There is a dividing line between the Eastern and Western grid, which has got seven, what we call back-to-back ties, because the frequency of the grid in the East and the frequency of the grid in the West are very different. Those ties are technologies so that we can accommodate the difference in frequency. My belief is most of those technologies are from the 1980s. In fact, not just my belief, my knowledge is those ties across the Eastern and Western interconnection are old technology, but they're really valuable technology as we saw three weeks ago during Winter Storm Uri. So we should be thinking about upgrading those. We've got a great resource down in the desert southwest by Lake Mead by Hoover Dam. It's a Mead substation, the second largest substation in the United States. And I only say that because I don't know what the first is and nobody argues about number two. But there's a perfect place to expand because we could bring wind from Wyoming. The El Dorado Valley is a hotbed for solar and utility scale solar and it hooks right to Southern California. And then the third piece that in my dream world, there's something called the Intertie Project, which runs from the Pacific Northwest by our sister organization, the Bonneville Power Administration, runs all the way down to Los Banos in California, has a 285 mile gap, and then picks up again in Arizona. And if you fill that gap, you could literally go from the Pacific Northwest in a giant loop through California, cross Arizona, back up into the middle part of the United States. So those are real practical ways to think about things that could be done for the grid. Yeah, and you've written a lot about the Mead substation and the interties, but what is preventing this from moving forward? You know, if you look at the history of this utility business, which I have, and you can all read in my book, Visions for a Sustainable Energy Future. If you look at the history, this used to be a very vertically integrated business, right? A utility owned the generation, the transmission, the distribution, and the meters. It was a very clean, clear model. Yeah, Sam Insull developed it back in the 1910 timeframe. And so you, it was a regulated business. You could build an asset, invest in an asset, and then get a rate of return over a number of decades. Well, back in the 90s and early 2000s, we delaminated the business. I don't generally say deregulated, but by delamination, I mean we split apart transmission, distribution, generation, and the consumer. So the question of who pays and who gains is really at the core of the, the question that you asked, right? The question really is who's going to commit to the payments to build all of this stuff? And how do you do this in a fair and an equitable manner? And that's the challenge today with the uncertainty that exists in this business, with utilities not sure if they're gonna even have customers in the traditional fashion, they're, they're really hesitant to invest a significant amount of money in an asset such as transmission, which could last 30 or 40 or even 50 years. So filling that gap of financing Filling the gap of getting the permits is a lot easier, believe it or not, than getting someone to stand up, raise their hand and say, I'm willing to commit to a 30-year offtake agreement for power. In the case of the Western Air Power Administration, there's a project that was started in 2007. Mind you, I only got here in 2013. 
we're in 2021 and the project has got the permits, it's got the rights of way, we have a loan program that they could take advantage of. I personally signed the record of decision in 2015, and yet no one's willing to stand at the other end of the line and raise their hand and say, we will take the power, we will make the commitment. Interesting. All right, so the grid is changing in ways it has never done before. You know, new technologies, new, new methods of connecting, you've got distributed energy, intermittent renewables, smart meters, and more. So how do you see the role of WAPI evolving as the entire sector changes? Really an excellent question. I believe that organizations like WAPA and quite frankly, other transmission-based organizations are really going to become network providers. Just as you think about uh, telephony today or any of the connections that we have, right? It doesn't matter whether you're on a telephone, an iPad, a cell phone, a ring device, an Alexa device, they all connect to a network. And I believe over time, the transmission system will be that network and will be that key element. Now, embedded in all of that is the technology that's going to be necessary to manage the myriad of things that you listed out there, right? I, I'm old enough to remember when we first plugged our computers in to RJ11 connectors in the wall, only to find the telephony system overwhelmed with the number of people plugging in. And it took a generation of technology to get people to be able to understand that, wait a second, yes, it's a telephone line, but it's really a communications lifeline. We're gonna face the same thing. In WAPA's case, we run control centers in multiple parts of the United States, which were used to the history of big hydro plant or a coal plant, putting it on the line, going to an end customer. Today, we have to figure out, gee, how are we gonna manage that battery that's being connected? Gee, how do we figure out this community solar that's hooked to us? And oh, by the way, as we saw in California last summer, when it gets really hot, the solar output isn't high enough, so we have to quickly supplement with other types of generation. So it really is gonna be, from my perspective, a network future with a lot of built-in intelligence at the back end of that. And that's really the critical issue that we face today, because I'll go back to the piece I mentioned before, which is who pays and who gains. And trying to resolve that will take legislation, it will take lots of agreement, and I will say candidly, it will take people who understand that running a utility is running a giant machine, and it's not being run simply for the benefit of one type of technology or another. Mark, let's change gears for a moment. You've championed the cause of social equity and all grid-related decisions. It's not always obvious how decisions about the grid can affect communities for both good and bad outcomes. Can you take a moment and talk to us about social fairness and justice and how it comes into play in the decisions WAPA has to make? Yeah, certainly. And it's, you know, I'd, I'd point out, you know, it's not just WAPA. I think every utility executive and every regulator and every state has to wrestle with this issue. Let's take solar panels, for example, which I'm a big proponent of. Solar panels today are aimed at consumers who have the money or the financial wherewithal to put them on their homes. They are generally, they're homeowners. They are folks who are in a certain segment of society. They still connect to the main grid. And this is a, a huge philosophical orientation. 
because today the kilowatt hour is being used less and less by a certain set of people and at least as much or more by other folks who may not be financially able to afford a solar panel or battery storage or a Tesla or any one of the devices that we see as the technology future. So there's a question to me personally about social equity. I look at things like microgrids, which I think have a fabulous opportunity, particularly for uh, businesses and commercial operations that need a high quality of regular power. But I think about the 28% of Americans that do not own their own homes that live in rental houses. I think about the fact that the average family of four in America makes $52,000 a year and want to make sure that as we think about all these great technologies, that we are not creating an energy divide similar to or even worse than the digital divide that we've seen through this horrible pandemic. And I believe it's critical for society to take that into account. If I am living in a community of rented houses in a low-income neighborhood, and I look across the river, and there's a, a microgrid that is supporting a wealthier community, what does that say about society? And oh, by the way, I'm, as the lower income individual, I'm actually paying for the security of that microgrid because of the backup power requirements, right? A kilowatt hour bears all of the cost in today's business model. And as I've editorialized about before, I think the kilowatt hour is dead. We need some new measure and way to manage it. It's not dead in terms of an engineering measurement, but what we've done is we've weighted the entire cost of the system from generation to transmission to distribution to the meter on a kilowatt hour. And when fewer and fewer kilowatt hours are being used by people who have the wherewithal to put in battery storage or to buy a Tesla, it to me smacks of social inequity. And I think we have to be really careful not to disenfranchise a huge segment of society who will never be able to afford a solar panel or never be able to afford a battery storage. So it's really important that organizations like WAPA and all of them take that into account, recognize what should be done for the community at large, because let's remember the generation component of electricity is only one small slice of the entire cost of keeping the lights on. And we want to make sure we're not unfairly burdening those who can least afford it in today's economy. Agreed. And even more important, given the social unrest of this past year. Mark, I want to now talk about your perspective on leadership at the utilities. You've talked and written about the importance creating the right type of culture and trusted leadership. Can you talk a bit more about the types of strategies you think are important for utility leaders to embrace? Is there a certain type of leadership you think is missing from the wider industry? Well, I'm not sure I want to indict the entire industry, but my experience gained both running organizations and candidly being a consultant in organizations is that people are looking for leadership that has vision and that takes that vision and translates it into something that's actionable. In the case of WAPA, we co-created, and and I want to stress that word co-created, a strategic roadmap to look out over 10 years. And the reason we did that was, quite frankly, to create a big tent approach to get folks engaged. 
not just our employees, but certainly our stakeholders are extremely valuable and supportive customers. And then we drive that down the next level to really saying, okay, what are the tactical actions that we should be doing? And then one more level down to understand what does that mean for me? I jokingly say everybody's favorite radio station is WIIFM, as in what's in it for me? Because my experience as a leader and as a follower is that people want to have a vision, they want to have a mission that they believe in, not just a strategic plan that sits on the wall, not just a bunch of tactics and actions, but really how does that tie the spectrum together? In the case of WAPA, when I came here eight years ago, we had a, it has what I would describe as great bones. You know, it, that it, it had a great mission, it had really a solid backbone, but it, what it didn't have was people aligned behind the future. And to me, the difference between successful organizations and so-so organizations is having a shared vision and a shared direction, but it's gotta be co-created. And I look out with some of the decisions that have been made in this industry, and I think that's been lacking. And quite frankly, I've worked with investor-owned utilities, co-ops, munis, joint action agencies, and the ones that are the best are the ones where they've got a leadership team that understands its role in co-creating a future that support its end-use customers, but also supports its employees. And look, we've all suffered this year in the pandemic, but ironically enough, I believe it's one of the reasons WAPA's had one of its best years ever. We have executed 98% of our operations and maintenance budget, 96% of our capital budgets. Our safety numbers are in the top decile in the entire industry. Our asset management program is really in the envy of most utilities. And it's not because of me. I jokingly say, you know, I'm the band leader who doesn't know how to play an instrument. And I've got fabulous musicians, though, that make the music. Yes, that certainly is impressive. Well, congratulations on the great success so far with WAPA. Okay, Mark, now we're going to pivot slightly to what we're calling our lightning round. This is just for listeners to get to know you, the person, rather than you, the CEO. So your responses will just be one word or one phrase. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Last book, magazine, or article you read that really got you thinking? American Moonshot by Doug Brinkley. What are you currently watching or streaming on TV? Both Lincoln and Stanley Tucci, Italy. We're all a little travel starved. What was your last vacation? Uh, went to New Zealand for uh, three weeks on a red stag hunt. Have you picked up any new hobbies or interests during the pandemic? Uh, my interest is getting the pandemic over so I can get back out on the road with our customers and employees. Any hidden talents you wish to share? I have a, uh, an ability to remember quotes at random times for random needs. And what are you most optimistic about? I'm most optimistic about the future of the energy business. It is the lifeline for the world. It is the lifeline for this country. And I truly believe that we are going to get to a future which is carbon-free or really low carbon, but that's going to open up a whole series of things that are really exciting for future generations. Very nice. As a reward, Mark, we're going to give you the final word here. As you close out in talking to our utility audience, what message or takeaway do you hope you can impart? 
what should be the top priorities or areas of focus for the utility professional in the coming year and beyond? Accept change. Change is inevitable. Of course, as folks have said, except from vending machines. And I, I really believe that the acceptance of change, a willingness to lean into these changes, is going to make this the most exciting industry to be in over the next 10 to 20 years. And we all need to grab a hold of it and enjoy it. Mark, it's been an absolute delight talking to you today. Thanks once again for such a thought-provoking and inspiring conversation. These topics are surely going to remain relevant to our industry for quite a long time, so I'm eager to see if we see movement in the direction you suggest. Thank you once again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You can always reach Mark through the Energy Central platform, where he welcomes your questions and comments. And once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. See you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast.